So, uh, last weekend we did go to Montreal, uh, Sam and Jake and myself, and had a reasonably uh, good time. Uh, Reasonably, not too much fun, certainly not a vacation, uh, but it was uh, good to be there. We ate poutine, right, Sam? Sam's first time. I know, 120, and never had poutine before. Utterly amazing. Uh, so yeah, it was it was absolutely great. The the church plant we've been supporting it for about five years now. It's growing. Uh, Benoit, the young pastor, is doing very well, and uh, he's quite a remarkably gifted young man. So it was great to spend time with him, and I think to be an encouragement uh, to him. We were certainly encouraged. Uh, they have a facility they're renting now, which is a beautiful sort of permanent space for them. They they've been moving around a fair bit. So they're going to be able to stay in this spot. It meets all their needs. It's a bit of a studio auditorium. So it's like permanent, uh, almost movie theater type seating. Uh, And so their setup's minimal. They're very happy about that. They bring in their own sound system. But uh, they're quite pleased with how things are going. Uh, It looks like financially, Lord willing, they will be uh, sustainable when our uh, commitment to them runs out in two years. And so we were questioning them about uh, plans in terms of pastoral staff and all the rest. Their ministries are going well. Uh, The demographic is healthy. New people uh, are coming to the church. And so we're actually very, very encouraged. Uh, Quebec is a very, very difficult place to minister the gospel. And so uh, for them to be uh, in God's grace, having a purchase there and to be growing is really remarkable. I think most of us don't understand uh, just how difficult it is to minister in a place where less than 1% of the population are evangelical Christians. Uh, It's almost impossible, Uh, particularly when the whole society, the whole culture has a view of church, which is sort of irrefragably tied to Roman Catholicism in a domineering and abusive sense. And so there's such a backlash against everything religious because the understanding of religion is tied to one particular system, which has been extraordinarily damaging. So even to come along and try to represent Christ, there are already all these preconceptions about what that means and what that looks like and all of the rest. So it's an extraordinarily, not only secular society, but this word gets used too much today, uh, but it is proper for Quebec. It is a post-Christian society. Uh, They've already had their Christendom experience and have moved past it, and so they already think they know what you're calling them to when you're calling them to Christ, something which they've already rejected. So it's just a very difficult place, uh, but in God's grace, they're doing well. Uh, just to clarify uh, what young Jacob was saying, uh, the car that we had did, have, in fact, have a sport function, and um, it, it allowed us to accelerate rapidly. And so when you're in Montreal, it's one of the things that you do. You, you eat baguettes, you have poutine, you go to the Notre Dame Basilica, you smoke cigarettes, you wear a chapeau, and you accelerate quickly. So that's what we did. It was just that whole package. Um, that's how we got to the Basilica, and it was the only way to keep the cigarette ashes going out the window instead of back into our laps. So it is, that's what we did. Uh, lots and lots of acceleration. Zero to 60 in, I don't know, it seemed like half a second. It was amazing. So, just so you know. And Sam was also pushing the accelerator with his cane from the other side. So that, that did make it more challenging to drive, but we still, we still got through. Actually, uh, for those of you who are praying, on the way home, 
there was nothing in Montreal the whole weekend. So it was utterly gorgeous when you were having your snowstorm. So we came. It was beautiful. We left Montreal Sunday at 12.30 uh, after I preached at the church. There, there was nothing happening. Uh, clear, beautiful. Started driving. A little, little bit of snow, a little bit of rain. Uh, we got into Ontario, and your system was moving towards us. So it wasn't great, but we decided we would just go as far as we could. So we did. We got to about Brockville, and then there was some sort of stoppage, so we were literally parked on the 401 for over an hour, which is fine because uh, Sam was asleep and I had uh, a collection of essays by Ralph Waldo Emerson on beauty and nature, so that was wonderful. And Jake was just, I actually don't know, he was in the back seat. I don't know what he was doing. I know. We already talked ourselves out by that point. Uh, so we, we were able to get to about Trenton and stayed in a hotel. It was a 26-hour trip on the way home uh, from Montreal to here just because of the roads. But in the end, it was just delightful. Speaking of traveling and conquest, book of Joshua. Joshua 23. This is the word of God. After a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But... If you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now, I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But, just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened 
until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Before we uh, work through this text, let's pray. Father, I would ask that you would, uh, in your grace, uh, help us this morning uh, to profit from your word. You alone know the circumstances of our lives. You alone know uh, the situations that we are coming from and out of uh, to this place this morning. And so we pray that you will, uh, in a special way, by your spirit, uh, fit the message of your word to every one of us in a special and in, and in an individually unique way. Lord, we know that your word has a meaning, and yet it can be applied uh, in a variety of ways. So we pray that by your grace and by your spirit, your word this morning will be applied properly and fittingly. I pray that you'll touch every one of our hearts, and that you will draw us closer to yourself. I pray that you'll forgive us for our, for our sin, uh, forgive us for our turning away from you, sometimes deliberately and sometimes uh, mistakenly. Father, draw us back. Give us clarity of moral vision and purity in spirit and heart so that we can obey you uh, in a way which pleases and honors you. Lord, uh, even now we recognize our dependency. Even now we look to you uh, for food and recognize that it is only you who can feed us. So do so uh, this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. But just before uh, looking at this text, uh, I was asked to make one announcement, which I forgot to do. Uh, we need a few more ushers. And so if you would like to be an usher, uh, that would be very helpful. You might ask, what does an usher do? It's an extraordinarily complicated thing. When we take up the offering, the ushers walk to the front and begin passing out baskets and then follow the basket back to the aisle. That's what they do. So if you can do that, which you can, it requires basic coordination, then you can be of service to us. Now, what I would personally like, and so this is me asking for a personal favor, which is dangerous, because it will very quickly will be able to tell how much you like me by your response. What I would like is I would like some women to help in this area. Um, I think that this, just optically, it's not an old boys club. I appreciate the men who take up the offering, uh, but I just personally would like to see some women doing that. Uh, I believe that there are areas in our church uh, where women who have gifts are restricted from using their gifts. This is not one of them. There's no law against this uh, or anything like that. It's just been by tradition. This is how it's happened. I don't have much issue with that. I would personally very much like to see some women involved uh, in this ministry. And so if you would like to do that, if you would be willing to do that, uh, I would personally appreciate it very much. Please come and talk to me. All right, Joshua 23. After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all the enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, 
their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Now, Joshua, the book, begins with some very familiar and famous verses. Be strong and courageous. Just be very strong. Be very courageous. Because at the, the beginning of Joshua, they're about to start going into the land. So it's something that they need to be. They need to be strong and courageous. There's a task for them to do. They need to trust God. But also, something which is sometimes overlooked, because we all want to be strong and courageous, is that you're also told how to be strong and courageous. That is, you are to meditate on the law of God day and night. That's how you will have victory. And that's the one thing it seems that uh, we, we disjoint today. So we all want strength and courage, but we don't want to meditate on the law of God day and night. We want spiritual strength and courage that accrues to us naturally when we're surfing the internet or when we're watching TV or whatever we're doing. We just want to be strong and we just want God to impart to us strength and courage and wisdom and understanding. But that strength and courage goes with meditating on the law of God day and night. That's how you're fruitful. In fact, Psalm 1, the imagery of being like a tree always bearing its crop in season, whatever it does, prosperous, that's drawn from Joshua 1. That whole, that whole psalmic imagery is Joshua 1. On his law he meditates day and night, Psalm 1. Meditate on the law of God day and night, Joshua 1. It, it, it's how you're successful in the promised land. It's a psalm about Joshua 1 in one sense. So, we want to be strong, we want to have courage, but we can't detach spiritual vigor from actual meditation and deep engagement with the Word of God. That's one of the reasons why this year I've been encouraging us to go through the Bible reading program with recognition that reading is not the same as meditation. With recognition that you can read the day's readings, close the book, and quite literally remember not a single word you read. That's entirely possible. Uh, in fact, a lot of our reading habits today lend itself to that sort of a reading. Our eyes scan the words, we close the book, there was no, there was no attempt for any mental retention whatsoever, let alone meditation and digestion and growth and application of what we read. So it's not just read the book, it's meditate on the book day and night. Your whole life is to be oriented around understanding and applying the Word of God in a deep way. Now, with that foundation then, the book of Joshua starts to unfold. And one of the things that uh, for many people today uh, in our society is highly problematic is you have the haram, you have the ban or the the eradication of the Canaanites, the order to put to death everything that breathes, young, old, male, female, old men, children. And there are an awful lot of people today, and, and I would suspect that even if, if you are here and you are a Christian, there are certain ethical sensibilities you have that, that somewhat get rubbed the wrong way by that command. We don't tend to endorse today, in any circumstance, genocide. 
But it appears that God does in this circumstance. And, and so how do you start to work through that? How do you start working through love your neighbor as yourself with Canaanite genocide? How does the same God command both? Well, the one response, which at some level I would suggest is bordering on fair, is the response of total submission and surrender to God and saying, I just don't know. But he's God and I'm not, and I will recognize his transcendent moral judgment, and in, particularly in working in a fallen world in his, with historical contingency, he can do, he has powers of operation that are rightly forbidden to anyone else. He is the judge, he will do what is right, even if I don't understand it. At some level, I think that's fair, actually. At some level, I think there's something spiritually healthy about a Christian who can say, I do not need to stand in judgment on God's ways and doings. They are beyond me. I do know that whatever the judge of all the earth does is right. some level, there's something healthy about that. I do think we can work through this a little bit more than just that, though. First, the Canaanites were a people group who had centuries in the land, centuries of time in which they could have modified their behavior and repented of what they were doing. Now, what were they doing? The Canaanites were an utterly barbarous collection of people groups who practiced all kinds of horrific idolatrous worship with horrific idolatrous practices. So, one of the things that we know about the Canaanites is that they very commonly practiced the sacrifice of infant children to their gods. This is not a minor thing. And so you're engaging with a society that has such implacably bloodthirsty deities that the way they're trying to satiate their deities is through shedding the blood of their own children. Sometimes literally burning them to death to the God. A society like that, I think you could make an argument that there are certain societies which demonstrate such levels of depravity and are so harmful that it is better for them not to exist than to exist. In other words, human society is not always intrinsically good, intrinsically worthy of preservation. In fact, you could make a sub... You have to come at this a little bit more carefully, with a little bit more nuance, but part of the burden of the Second World War was that the very existence of Nazi Germany was intolerable morally because of what they were doing in terms of their practices and treatment of other people. That society needed to end in order to cease its function. And whatever was required in terms of force to cause that society to stop doing what they were doing was justified. Now, you might think that the Second World War wasn't justified. That's up to you. But that would have been the logic behind it. Here are things that are intolerable. It must be stopped if there needs to be death and coercive force to stop what Hitler is doing. So be it. 
If that's bombs, it's bombs. If it's guns, it's guns. But we will, by force, stop these atrocities from being committed. You can make a parallel argument that God sends in Israel to stop the atrocities that are being committed. Now, the difficulty there, though, is that there is supposed to be, in most ethical theory of war, there's supposed to be a clear differentiation between combatants and non-combatants. One of the most difficult things today in the world is that the face of warfare has shifted so that now it's very difficult to actually recognize who's a combatant and who isn't. Uh, We have this whole plague of children's soldiers in various parts of the world. Uh, You have this whole plague of people who, who dress as civilians but then go and, and attack uh, soldiers. Uh, does the person producing bombs in the factory constitute a civilian, or are they a soldier because they're producing materiel for war? I mean, it becomes very, very complex. Right? But God said, kill everyone. That, that would be intolerable even, even with Nazi Germany. There was no war mandate. Go into Berlin and kill every man, woman, and child. So what's going on here? Well, several things. First, the Canaanites knew about what God had done with Egypt. The whole land is quaking in fear about Yahweh, who's greater than Egypt's gods. And so everyone in Canaan had the opportunity to recognize the superiority of Yahweh or to leave the land. That's why a lot of the language is the nations will be driven out of the land. They're being removed from the land. If they stay and fight, they will die. But if they leave their life will be preserved. Okay? First. Second thing is, very importantly, in terms of language, this isn't genocide. Genocide is killing on the basis of race or some other sort of ethnic factor. The Canaanites are not killed because they're Canaanites. They're killed because they're wicked idolaters who are killing their own children. But it's a moral reason, not an ethnic reason. And so when people say that the book of Joshua, that the Bible endorses genocide, we have to be very careful to unpack what you mean by genocide. Because if you mean hatred toward hatred and annihilation of someone on the basis of, of ethnicity, that's not what's going on here at all, actually. Now, one of the reasons that we know that one of the reasons we know that God was actually quite happy not to have Canaanites put to death was because of what happens to the very first Canaanite you meet. And this has to be the lens through which you read all of the rest of the story. Who's the very first Canaanite you meet in Joshua? Rahab. What happens to her? She's saved. She's a hero of faith in Israel. Hebrews 11 looks back at Rahab. But she's your first candidate, and she's a prostitute. 
not the, not the most moral person even in that society. So, what do you do with that? The reality is, the law, again, the, the ban was to prevent idolatry, which would destroy Israel. The problem wasn't race or ethnicity. The problem was idolatrous practices. Where people would give up their idolatrous practices, there was no reason whatsoever for any violence at all. The very first candidate you meet is Rahab. The very first candidate you meet is, becomes part of Israel. The very first candidate you meet is saved by God's grace. That's the point. It wasn't go in and kill everyone who has this sort of DNA. It's, it's go in. There are people who are already quite literally spiritually dead who are killing other people who are spiritually dead. This society is intolerable. Go in, end the society, but you can end the society through conversion as well. That is not forced conversion at the point of a sword the way Islam does things, but actually genuinely showing people the superior power of God and offering them the opportunity for reconciliation with him by faith. And where you have that, there is salvation, not death. Very important. The other thing is that at some level, almost certainly, you're dealing with vastly exaggerated war rhetoric, which was entirely understood in the day, but which is not understood today because we're not part of that culture. So we literalize expressions which were rhetorical in that culture. And you can actually demonstrate this linguistically from the Bible itself, as well as from parallel literature. So, when you talk about putting to death everything that breathes, everyone talked that way. The Egyptians talked that way. The, the Assyrians talked that way. And no one ever did. It's sort of like when you're in a defensive position, you say, fight to the last man. Well, no one ever did that. You know, fight to the last. What does that mean? It's just rhetoric. So what you do is you have this exaggerated war rhetoric in the culture of the ancient Near East. Everyone understood it. The Egyptians, uh, we have documents of the, the ancient Egyptians fighting Israel, interestingly enough. And what we know is this little minor, minor skirmish, historically. And it says, we annihilated Israel from the face of the earth. We left them without seed. Meaning, we killed all of their soldiers and all of their children. No one's alive. Israel's gone. I don't, I don't know how much you know about history, but there still is Israel, right? And then you have in the same document, just a little bit later, they're fighting Israel again. Well, how is that possible? It's all exaggerated rhetoric. Everyone understood how these things were taken. So you would talk about, we annihilated the enemy. All it means is that you won. It might have been a close-run thing, actually, but you're claiming the victory. People talk that way in the ancient Near East about battles they lost. Because the kings never recorded battles that they lost. It was always saving face, right? And so you, when you come to this, Rahab saved. You know, the Canaanites are being driven out. The reality is this language is language, it's military language of conquest. Yes, go in and take possession of the land. But it's not literal annihilation. It just isn't. In fact, the word that we translate as city, go in and destroy all of their cities, the word ur in Hebrew, actually has a much wider linguistic range than the word city does in contemporary English today. So, Part of our issue is that when we think city, we think 
Toronto, Guelph, etc. When you think ancient Near East city, you need to think like 100 people. Like Jerusalem itself in King David's day, when it was enormous, shockingly small population. The word Ur in Hebrew often can mean city, it can mean camp, but it's often used of military outposts, particularly in military contexts, which is what this is. So where you have Israel coming in, fighting in terms of military conquest and military outposts, how many women and children do you expect are going to be in those military barracks? in those military camps? Well, not very many. This is not merely going in and sort of raising the entire population to the ground. It's going in and sequentially conquering outposts, taking important cities, without actually annihilating everyone. Now, one of the ways that we know that, uh, in terms of the text itself, would be things like this. Joshua 11.23 says, So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses. 11.23. Joshua took the entire land. How much of the land did he take? The entire land. One chapter later, we read this. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken. Now, either the author and the editor was an enormous dope or they didn't just contradict themselves in, in the span of half a dozen or you know, a couple dozen verses. It's perspectival. That is, in one sense, is Israel the occupying power in the land? Yes. Have they taken the entire land? Yes. Are there still large areas of land to be taken? Yes. It's perspective. Have we conquered all of the Canaanites? Yes. Are there many Canaanites left unconquered? Yes. It's perspectival. They're dominating. They're being successful. And yet there are still large areas of land left to be taken. In in chapter 23, it says that they had rest from all of their enemies. They had rest from all their enemies. But in verse 5, it says, The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. That's not past tense. There are still enemies to be pushed out, even though the land has rest from enemies. It's, it's perspectival. Verse 7. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. The land is still filled with these Canaanite nations. And yet the land has rest from war. All of their enemies have been driven out. It's, it's perspectival. Verse 12. If you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations... You say, well, what survivors? Are they supposed to put to death everyone? What do you mean if you remain with these survivors? Why don't you say kill all the survivors? That's what you should have said if that's what you were meant by put everyone to death. And the reality is when the war was won, when the military was defeated, it was completely understood there would be Canaanites who themselves were not put to death. Verse 13 says, Then you may be sure the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations. He will no longer drive them out. They're still there. Now this becomes the enormous problem in Judges. In Judges, chapter 1, you see a progression 
where there are some places where the Israelites are dominant and over the Canaanites. There are some where they're neck and neck, and there's other places where the Canaanites are dominant over Israel. But that's post-Joshua. So quite clearly, even though all of the land has been taken, in one perspective, the land is still filled with Canaanites, who are going to cause no end of trouble in the book of Judges. All of that has to ameliorate against how we understand sort of the annihilation of everyone in the land. They're all very important things. Now, having said that, here Joshua begins to tell people, he begins to tell the people of Israel what they need to do. I am now very old, he says. I'm not sure how many of you feel that. Uh, Many days I do. I am very old. So, let's pass it on. Let me tell you what you need to know. Well, what you need to know is this. You need to continually look back on what God has done in order to prepare for what God is going to do in the future. That's what you need to do. Anchor yourself in what God has done. Look at what he has brought you through. Look at what he has brought you to. Remember what God has done. Notice that not a single one of God's good promises to you has failed. With that knowledge, you are then put in a position where you can start to move forward. You can move into the future. You don't know what the future holds. But you know what God has done in the past. How he has brought you through whatever it is that he's brought you to. And so today, Joshua says, look back at what God has done. Take courage and start moving into the future. That's how you will be able to handle whatever it is that God calls you to in the future. It's anchoring yourself in his care over you and protection in the past. Now, that requires... Not turning aside from the book of the law to the left or to the right. Do not bow down to their gods or swear by them. In other words, you remember what God has done in order to move into the future, and you do that by pouring yourself into his word and by refraining from bowing down to the idols of the nations around you. Now, of course, in Israel, this is quite literal. Uh, There are literal idols. Today, we make the metaphors. In our society, we're talking about the metaphor, you know, the, the, the idols of power and, and money and pleasure and all of the rest. An idol can be defined possibly uh, as sort of anything that takes the place of God in your life. Anything that occupies the position that only God should hold for you is an idol. And so if we're going to move forward, we need to remember what God has done in the past, meditate on the word, establish God as in the principal place of your life, And make sure you are not capitulating to the idols of the nations around you. Now, that requires an enormous amount in our day when we're not bowing down to to, figures of stone and wood, at least you ought not to be. uh, That requires some thinking. What kind of idols do we have in our society? To what extent... Have I uncritically accepted their rule over me? To what extent do I actually find myself bowing down to what our society glorifies? 
The problem with society is it's like it's it just our environment. It's our social environment. And when we grow up in a social environment or a church environment, we tend not to question things that are traditional. We tend just to assume that it's right. This is the way it's been done. So that when we just... It's, it's sort of like sometimes you know, philosophers will ask the question, and no one really knows the answer, of course. You know, does a fish know that it's wet? Well, probably not. It doesn't find itself conscious whatsoever. But, but the point is that the fish is in this environment. It's just so surrounded by water, it doesn't even differentiate. It doesn't even know that it's in water. It doesn't recognize the medium that it's in. That's like us in society a lot of times, far too often. Does our society live on overconsumption? Yes. But do I consume just like my neighbors? Do I even think about that? Do I, do I just assume that the patterns of buying and selling in our society are right? Do, do I ever bring them to the critique of the word of God? Do I, do I ever do that? Do, do, I ever, do I ever just actually stop and, and ask myself the question, according to God's word and according to, to just pure rationality and analysis, do I have enough? Am I, can I be content with this? Do I need more? Do we find ourselves bowing down to all the social pressures of, of the prestige of, of money or education or, or power or whatever it is? Are our priorities radically different? When I say radically, I, I mean radically. Not just a little bit. Not, not just societies you know, at, at step 100, but I'm at, I, I'm at 95 because you know, I, I, I watch basically the same movies, but, but not... You know, I just, my standards are just a little better. Just a little better. That's all God wants. is me to be just a little better than the world around me. No, God wants you to be completely His. And in a society which is pagan and anti-God, frankly, you better have a whole slate of priorities that are totally different from your neighbors. Totally, completely different. Or you're too at home in an idolatrous system. That's all there is to it. Recognize the idols. Do not bow down to them. How will you recognize idols? Particularly when they're metaphorical. Well, the only way is to engage the Word of God. This is, this is our weakness as Christians, frankly. Our weakness as Christians is that we accept by default the default settings of our society... Because we don't engage the Word of God night and day. That's our problem. But what's the secret of success, if I can be so crass as to use that language? Verse 9. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. That's the secret. The Lord fights for you. You are not going to single-handedly, in your own power and wisdom, change the world. But God will fight the battles. We need to be faithful and obedient to follow what God is doing and to, to with Joshua 1, be strong and courageous. It takes a lot of strength and courage to do things God's way. And you have to understand, remember you know, this, the whole story of Jericho? We're in Jericho and they walk around the walls. You have to know something. In all seriousness, what God is doing is he's doing this. He is saying, okay, Joshua, what are you? Uh, I'm a general. Okay, do you know a little bit about warfare? Sure, that's my job. You know what? You're going you're gonna to lay siege to a city. 
Okay, I can do that. Great. Here's how you're going to do it. Joshua, what's your plan? Well, you know, we'll cut off supplies and we'll build this camp and the embarkers and we'll get the, you know, the ramp to knock down the gate. That's the weakest point. And we'll make sure that, you know, the archers on the walls are taken care of and on. You know, actually, no, what you're going to do is you're going to walk around the city. And I said, no, no, I, I know that. Of course we're going to do that. You're always going to scout out the wall. Of course we're going to walk around the city. And then we're going to find the weak areas and we're going to lay the siege. He goes, no, no, no. No, that's all you're going to do. And then you're going to walk around the city again the next day. He goes, okay, God, I know. Like, we'll, we'll be careful. We'll, we'll inspect it carefully. And then we'll lay the siege works. He said, no, no, you're just going to do it again. On the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times. What God is doing is he's quite literally saying this, Joshua, I'm, you are going to, you're going to do something that is utterly absurd. Kill your ego now. Because what you are doing is stupid. This doesn't work. And if you, don't, if you think that this works, then go besiege a city with walls and walk around and see what happens. Right? This doesn't work. This is the worst military tactic in the history of warfare. It is utterly ridiculous. And that's the point. Joshua, I am going to take this city. This city is going to fall in such a way that no one can think it's because of you and Israel. From the very beginning, you will learn this lesson. I am the one who is driving out the nations before you. Your tactic stinks. But when the Lord does it, it works. The Lord drove out the nations before you. So be faithful to God and love him. He is your covenant God. Submit to him. Be loyal to him. Be faithful to him. He is the only way you will have success. If you turn away and ally yourself with the survivors of nations, etc., etc. If you're like the world, you will perish like the world. Terrible warning here. If you want to be like the Canaanites, you will become like the Canaanites, and then God will treat you like a Canaanite. That's the progression. Be very careful not to be at home and allied with these nations around you. If you are like them, you will become them. You will be treated as they deserve to be treated. You yourselves will be destroyed from the land. That's the same today. One thing that Jesus will not tolerate is is if you actually are like the world, it proves you are part of the world. It doesn't prove that you're a compromised Christian. It proves that you're not a Christian. And so if you are like the world, you will perish as the world does. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart is. Your heart cannot be in heaven with your treasure on earth. It cannot work that way. What we do today is we often say, well, my heart's in heaven, so that must be where my treasure is. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't say, figure out where your heart is, then know that's where your treasure is. He says, look around at what you actually care about. Look at what actually you prioritize. Look at how you spend your time. What you, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. If your treasure is in endless you know, internet, that's where your heart is. If your treasure is in your bank account, that's where your heart is. That's how you know where your heart is. It's where your treasure is. A lot easier to figure out where your treasure is than where your heart is. We can deceive ourselves about where our heart is. Just take an honest look. What are the things I care about the most? That's where your heart is. And if it's in this world, that's where your heart is. It's in this world. If your heart is in the world, you'll be treated like you're part of the world. Because you are. 
if you're just like the Canaanites, you'll be treated like a Canaanite because that's what you are. Verse 14. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. It's a great line. One for you to repeat to yourself, maybe not daily, that might be morbid, but frequently, you realize that you are going to go the way of all the earth. That means that you are going to die. We are all going to die. We are. We need to just come to grips with this. Because every single one of us actually somehow sneakingly believes that we're going to be the exception. But we are all going to die. One day, these fantastically muscled arms are going to be bare of all flesh, and these will be the arms of a skeleton. That is going to happen. That is, that is an inevitable fact. One day, you know, this cranium will be empty. And don't joke about that. <laughs> One day, we're, that's the way of all the earth. We're all going to die. That's actually the only way to live life properly. You can't know how to live unless you know that you're going to die and that you're ready for death. And of course, we know that the only way to be ready to death, for death is to have your faith in Jesus Christ. Right? To be ready, to make sure you're trusting in Jesus. I know to go the way of all of the earth. This is what you need to know, Joshua says. One, you'll be destroyed if you act like the other nations, but you know not one of God's good promises has failed. Not one. Now that's a pretty awesomely true thing to be able to say before you die. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and that's okay. Not one of God's promises has failed. That means that all of God's promises to you in Christ Jesus are yes and amen, as it says in the book of Hebrews. Every single one of the promises of God. Now, if you ever want to do something somewhat encouraging, just start looking at some of the promises of God. There's a whole lot. Lots and lots and lots and lots. Not one of the good promises of God will ever fail. But, as Joshua says, there are other promises of God too that have to do with punishment of the unrepentant wicked. And if God is faithful to his promises, he is faithful to his promises to bless, but he's also faithful to his promises to punish. And so we need to take that very, very seriously. Are we living our lives in a way which is pleasing and honoring to God by faith in Jesus Christ? All of his promises are yes. His promises to bless are yes. His promises to curse are yes. If we are in Christ, every single one of God's good and perfect promises to bless is ours. If we are not in Christ, none of them are ours. And the promises of God that we will receive are the promises of punishing the guilty and the wicked. So, as Joshua prepares to die, he gives the people great hope, opportunity for immense joy, but also very sober and warning. I'm about to die. What you need to know is that you stand at the crossroads even today. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But you pick. 
God is a faithful God. He will not compromise his word. His word is full of many glorious things, many terrible things. You choose. But every single one of the things God has said will, in fact, be true. Because he cannot deny himself. Well, we will see in a couple weeks how Israel responds to what Joshua says. How they begin to, to serve the Lord uh, in the book of Judges. And we will see that God is faithful to both types of promises, uh, depending on the response and the behavior of his people. So we must choose properly, choose wisely, and do what the Lord requires. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in a closing song.